Today's passage comes from John 2 and is two stories of Jesus displaying power and authority. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed. There they stayed for a few days when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables, exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. And he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove you have authority to do all of this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome uh, to Christ City Church. My name is Matthew. Uh, I'm the pastor here and really excited um, that uh, you guys have joined us this morning uh, for worship. So uh, when I first moved to D.C., um, I had to begin, one of the first sort of orders of business was to figure out how to decipher parking signs. Uh, I don't know if anyone else, like I remember just sort of the first few weeks here, I'm just standing like in front of poles like going, God almighty, what? When? Like, there was just sort of, you could park here during certain times, but only if you had a certain sticker that I had to figure out how to get. And then, uh, but it was only like certain seasons of the year, like certain times, like there's other months where you got to park on the other side of the street, but uh, during a certain time, like it's not just all the time. And I just, at this point in my life, I mean, we've been here almost five years now, and so you've kind of getting, have gotten used to it. But periodically, whenever we have someone that comes and visits us, I find myself having to explain to them where to park. And it's like a 20-minute conversation. I'm like, dear Lord, this is complicated. And I forget. And they're like, uh, I don't know where to park. I'm like, look, just here's the deal. It's going to cost you about $50 to park somewhere in the city. You're going to get a ticket. 
have fun, welcome to DC. And like, it's just like, because the signs can just be so complicated. I was thinking about this, and it sort of sent me down this internet rabbit hole that I would like to share with you. I just Googled like confusing signs and instructions. And uh, so some of these uh, sort of came up. Um, I could imagine myself standing in front of this pole going, all right, it's one way, it's a dead end, don't park the other side. And then you just stand right there, like you can't move anywhere else, I, you know. Um, <laughs> sounds like a lovely place, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what you do with that one. Uh, there are some others. Uh, got, you know, reptiles, big problem here in this uh, part of America. I don't know if you can see that. It says, state prison, next exit. Don't pick up hitchhikers. That's <laughs> a general kind of rule of thumb. There's some of us in the room that are like, dude, I'm totally breaking that rule. I'm driving down the road, there's some dude hitchhiking, I'm like, this is a story and a blog post, and I'm going to live tweet this whole thing. So, <laughs> I don't, uh, don't go in there. There's some choices I've made. I probably needed that sign, you know, like in front of me. I don't know if there's any others. So that's good. So it just because the thing is about signs is that they, they're supposed to point us somewhere, right? Like we're supposed to be able to see some signs or see instructions, and then they kind of give us a, a direction or a destination. Um, the thing is, is that signs can be so confusing. Not just road signs that are confusing, but there can be signs within a relationship that are confusing, right? There's, there can be mixed messages. There uh, can be confusion. Um, there can be instructions that can be confusing about what steps we're supposed to take and in what order. Signs are supposed to, they're supposed to inform us, and typically they're to direct us to some end. Road signs, they point us to a destination towards something. Signs inform us uh, and uh, give us uh, insight. Some relationship signs, they're supposed to point us towards intimacy or caring, whether in friendships or families or um, others. Um, Self-made signs, they point us towards, my son has uh, post-it notes all up over uh, his room where he's made some commitments for Lent and he's trying to remind himself of something. So these are signs that remind him of what he's supposed to do there to give him directions towards a certain aim that he's, that he's headed. Either reminders of who we are or simply what we want to do. But the thing is that for a sign, they all point to something else. There's not a sign that just says, I'm a sign. They, they actually... The purpose of it is to point us in a different direction. In John 2, we run across two of the first seven signs in John's gospel. We know that they're signs because at different points, John just says, this is a sign. Uh, just to look ahead in John uh, 2, verse 11, when G what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. This is a sign that's pointing to something else. John will show us different signs through his gospel. And the purpose of the signs was to point towards Jesus' identity as the Savior, as the, the great rescuer, the, the uh, one who had been longed for. That the, that the point of all of these signs, of all of these miracles, is to stir our belief and our hope in Jesus. The first sign that we come across is a sign of transformation in chapter 2. The setting is a wedding in the town of Cana in the region of Galilee. Cana is uh, nearly 70 miles north of Jerusalem, but it's very near the town of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. 
Weddings uh, at that time, there were community-wide celebrations. And so whenever uh, there was a wedding that was happening, then word would go out throughout the town and maybe even throughout the region. And so the entire community would sort of shut down and attend the wedding. And many times these weddings would take place for many days, sometimes as long as a week. So this was a, a huge celebration that's happening here. And because this was in Cana, very near Nazareth, it's likely that Jesus and his mother Mary would have received the invitation like their fellow community members had. And, you know, I, a lot of love happens here at Christ City Church. A lot of weddings are happening. I get these invitations. Got an RSVP, you know, me, plus one. Got to double check. Can you bring kids? Got to check sort of myself. Do I actually want to bring my kids to this thing? And then sort of send in my RSVP. I don't know how Jesus did it. Like, he's like, yes, plus one, Mary. And then, like, and then 12 other <laughs> randos that are coming with me. But however it worked out, like Jesus, Mary, and the disciples, they show up. Um, and the thing is that nearly every commentator that I looked at and every commentary that I've looked at that explores sort of Jesus um, at, the, at this wedding, and nearly every commentator in the first few centuries of the church, they make note that Jesus' first miracle, his first sign is performed at a wedding. Now, the comments and explanations for this, they, they sort of ba- vary a little bit, but um, the near universal agreement is that Jesus just liked to party, and that's why he was there. And so for me, I mean, I think that Cal in Talladega Nights, I think that he's actually more right than he is wrong. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt, because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party, too, because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. Excellent job on the production squad. Well done. I think because the thing is, yes, Talladega Nights reference in a sermon. Um, I think the thing is that Jesus wanted to be in places and spaces where people and families and communities uh, gathered together. Because it actually afforded everyone a a visual and a tangible glimpse of where redemption was headed. And that it was headed in a gathering. You see, one of the ways that the Bible consistently describes the end of days is when all things are made right and new and fully and finally redeemed. That one of the consistent images is that of a wedding and of a feast and a celebration. Jesus' presence at the wedding, it's not happenstance, but is providentially ordered. Celebration is a right part of our faith's expression. Because it points to the day when God ultimately gathers together all of the dear ones that have been separated. Whether we've been separated by death or by distance or heartbreak or sorrow or mission or purpose or labor or duty or fear or courage. Whatever has been the thing that has separated us, then whatever reason we've been scattered, then God says, dear ones, you've been apart for too long. So I'm going to gather you all together. And we're going to celebrate well. We're going to celebrate a a, a wedding, a a coming together. Because God's original intention was that we would be a part of a great and glorious gathering. However, there's a problem uh, that shows up over the course of the wedding. They run out of wine. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. This is actually quite a huge problem because uh, the most important factors in a wedding in ancient uh, Palestine, uh, the, the most important 
players in a wedding uh, in order of importance was a bride, a groom, and wine. And the first two may actually have been optional. What wine was just, it was just, uh, uh, wine in the wedding ceremony and in the wedding celebration was crucial for the wedding day. Uh, even today in many traditional Jewish weddings, there's a blessing of the wine that's a part of the celebration. Providing wine for the guests was an absolute expectation placed on the families that were hosting the wedding. And running out of wine would have been an absolute disgrace for the family and a social disaster. There were even provisions in Jewish law that allowed wedding guests to sue the wedding hosts if they didn't have enough wine. This is how important wine was into the weddings of the day. The shame of running out of wine would have been something that the family carried from that point for the rest of their lives. The family hosting the wedding would have had to carry the stigma of being the family that failed to provide properly for the newlyweds as well as for the community. The, the newlyweds themselves would have had to begin their marriage with the stain and shame of having had their wedding be, day be the day forever remembered when the community wasn't cared for and the celebration had to end prematurely. And because the wedding was a town-wide, if not region-wide event, the dishonor would have been known by everybody and told by everybody and remembered forever by everybody. Absolute public shame and humiliation. And so when Mary looks at Jesus and says, they have no more wine, that's a heavy weight of a statement. What she's really saying is, Jesus, listen, utter shame and disgrace is about to befall this family. Shame is a, a powerful weapon the enemy uses. The fear of shame it can actually control us. It can cause us to become who we don't want to be, or it can cause us to withhold who we truly are. I lived in D.C. for a few years now, and while it's not so long, it's long enough to, I think, identify shame as one of the chief tools that the enemy is using in many of the lives of those that call this city home, especially those that have moved here in pursuit of education or career paths. Some of us, after being at the top of our class and voted most likely to succeed, after years of working hard and making the grade or making the cut, and after years of having it all together, you arrive at the meat grinder that is the D.C. job hunt, a hunt that stretches on for months and months, if not years for some. You begin to realize that there are many others who, too, were at the top of their classes, who hustled harder or faster or were smarter or maybe just had more connections than you. And doubt worms its way in. And not just any doubt, but the worst kind. It's called self-doubt. And it wait, makes its way into you. For some of us, as, as you fight to kind of sort your way out of, and maybe that's not your story, but one like it, and as you sort of work to fight your way out of self-doubt, then bad circumstances get mixed in with bad decisions, either financially or relationally or both. And you end up in debt financially or relationally, or both. You find yourself in a spot where you never imagined that you would be in, and it begins to take root in your heart, and there's fear and there's shame that covers you in that. Because if anybody ever found out how worse off you are than you present, if the secret was known, then it seems like that shame would actually crush you, because shame is real. Brene Brown is a social work professor at the University of Houston. She's an author and a bit of a Zed Talk celebrity, and she calls shame the swampland of the soul. 
She goes on to say that what shame says is that you're not good enough. You didn't finish your MBA. Your wife left you. Your dad is in prison. I know those things that happened to you growing up. I know you don't think you're pretty or smart or talented or powerful enough. I know your dad didn't pay attention even when you made CFO. She goes on to say shame drives two big tapes. Never good enough and if you can beat that one, then who do you think you are? Shame doesn't say I made a mistake. Shame actually says I am a mistake. Some cultural commentators observe that shame has become a commodity in our society that we seem to be peddling in these days. Recently, I watched a lecture by Monica Lewinsky that she gave that was beautiful and courageous when she shared her own 20-year journey through shame following an illicit relationship that she had with President Clinton when she was but 22 years old. She said, for nearly two decades now, we have slowly been sowing seeds of shame and public humiliation in our cultural soil. Gossip, websites, paparazzi, reality programming, politics, news outlets, and sometimes hackers all traffic in shame. It's led to the desensitization and a permissive environment online, which lends itself to trolling, invasion of privacy, and cyberbullying. The shift has created what Professor Nicholas Mills calls a culture of humiliation. We have all experienced and maybe even experiencing now the fear and control that shame has over our lives. The fear that others may find out that we're not as put together, that we're not as strong or not as calm or we're not as secure or right or as anchored as we present. And we fear the shame that one day we might actually run out of wine and everybody would know. But the story continues. In verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Uh, verse 4, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Um, <laughs> nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used uh, by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill uh, the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. Verse 9, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Mary knows that the shame stakes are high. And so she comes to the one who she knows can make, can make a difference. Now, a quick side note, when Jesus replies, woman, why do you involve me? The thing is, that can actually sound quite harsh. Some of you are probably like, wow, blunt Jesus uh, on display here. I like party Jesus. What happened to that? Um, it can sound harsh to our 21st century ears, but in the original language of Greek and even in the original context, it, um, it was meant and received really differently. Um, it would be similar to saying my lady um, or dear woman. It's actually the similar, it's the same phrasing that Jesus uses when he's on the cross. And he looks down at his mom and he asks John to care for his mother. John 19, when Jesus, just before dying, he says, woman, here's your son, looking to John. And he looks to John and says, here's your mother. So it's, there's a tenderness to it that, that we can miss. What's also instructive here, by the way, is the sassiness of Mary. Like she's not even phased by Jesus' words, like not your time, I'll show you. Uh, guys, help him out here. Like she just sort of moves forward. Jesus is expressing some reluctance to perform what would have been his first recorded miracle. But Mary senses the weight of the situation. She's a woman of action. 
So she immediately looks at the wedding servants and says, whatever Jesus tells you to do, do that thing. Which if you don't get anything else out of this sermon, maybe that's a word for you. <laughs> whatever Jesus tells you to do, just do that thing. I, I mean, I, I don't know, you know what's going to happen if you do that, but I think it will probably lead to life and life everlasting, and it may end up with a really good glass of wine. <laughs> so Jesus tells you something to do, do it. But I digress. Let me come back to the wine. The servants, they take the stone jars, and these would have been just massive uh, jars, and they fill them all the way up. These jars were used for ceremonial washing. They were supposed to hold water that was meant to make those that were defiled by sin, and they were used to take the sin away. And whatever shame came with that sin, these were the jars that were used to do that thing so that you could enter into worship with God. The jars that Jesus had filled would have totaled between 120 and 180 gallons. So this isn't just like a few milk jugs of wine that uh, were brought forward. It was a massive quantity. It was an enormous amount, a surplus, a wine to clear the thirst of an entire celebration. The thing is, though, it's not just the amount that is so stunning here, but it's also the quality. Verses 9 and 10 highlight that what Jesus has done was to transform the, not just the, con, the quality of the drink or the condition of the drink, but the quality of the wine was actually superior to what had been served before. Verse 9, and the master of the banquet, he tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants, uh, they knew. And he pulled the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. You see, the, the wine wedding practice of the day was to serve the best wine first. And then as the wedding ceremony progressed, which uh, again, it could last for days, if not an entire week, then the lower quality wine was served later at the beginning of the celebration. Wine palates, they are particularly discerning. And then as the guests continue to drink, they just become less choosy. So the beginning of the wedding ceremony, you're drinking like the Duck Horn Merlot from the Three Rivers Winery in Napa. It's ranked nine. 95 on the wine spectators list in 2017, $100 a bottle. And then by the end of it, you're like, wine in a box? Great. You're just <laughs> drinking whatever. But that's not how Jesus uh, worked. Uh, the, and what happens is the master of the banquet, he brings sort of the clueless bridegroom off to the side. And he says, you have saved the best until now. You saved the best for the last. That's not how this normally goes. What the master of the banquet is doing is he is recognizing that something quite honorable and surprising is happening, and he's attributing it to the bridegroom. The banquet master is essentially saying, you saved the best for last, and, and when you did that, like you honored us as your guests, and you deserve honor for that. What has taken place isn't just that Jesus changed water into wine. He didn't just change the chemical makeup of liquid. Rather, it is that he has entered into the pain and shame of a situation, taken it on himself, and in return, what would have been received as humiliation is now received as honor. And John, in telling the story, he identifies this as a sign, a sign that points to Jesus as the rescuer as the one who takes our humiliation, our shame, and our fear, and in its place gives honor and dignity. Here is the one who meets us in our place of lacking and need and supplies that which no one else is able to adequately provide, and he saves us. 
because of that, Jesus is one worthy of faith and of our belief and our trust. He takes our shame and he gives us honor. That's the sign. The last thing that we'll deal with is the second sign that we encounter in John. It's very different from the wedding story and the sign that comes from there, yet it still points the readers of John's gospel towards the power and compassion of God and stirs belief in us in Jesus. The setting here is 70 miles south of Cana in Jerusalem, and the occasion is the Jewish festival of Passover. And this festival um, begins to draw Jews from all over the region. And they come, to celeb- they come into Jerusalem to celebrate this Jewish holiday. The Passover is the celebration of the story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery for, in Egypt. And so Jesus arrives at the temple in Jerusalem and with his disciples, and they uh, arrive to participate in the Passover at the temple. And what's awaiting him is a marketplace that has been set up in the temple. The temple is a... It's helpful to imagine it. It's a massive structure. So if you can think of like two or three of the Smithsonian Institute's sort of st- a museum sort of stuck together, it's like that large, and there's different sections of it. Um, <clears throat> the markets, they weren't set up throughout the temple, but they're set up in a place that's called the temple courts, which were the outermost parts of the temple. The temple courts were made up of smaller courts, um, including the women's court, the priest's court, the Gentile court, and others. And it seems as though that the markets were actually set up in the Gentile courts, which are the courts that are the farthest away from the center of the temple. The center of the temple is the holiest place. And so the Gentile courts were the place, the only place actually, where the Gentiles were actually able to enter. And they had to stay there. And what's there now is a marketplace and animals and all of the things that animals eat and leave after eating. And this is their place. Verse 14, in the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. The thing is, on the face of it, there's nothing necessarily wrong with what's happening here. Because pilgrims, they would have come from all over the region to perform animal sacrifices. And if they came from great distances, they couldn't have carried with them all of the animals that were required for the Passover sacrifice. That's why cattle and sheep and doves are present. And on the face of it, with the money changers, there's nothing necessarily wrong with the presence of money changers. Most of the time in ancient Jerusalem, um, you would have brought with you different currencies from whatever region you came. And so uh, if you came from Syria or farther away parts of Roman-occupied Palestine, then you would have had a different currency there, and you arrive in Jerusalem, and you would need uh, a foreign exchange was just needed. So Jesus' actions in the temple, they're not necessarily a protest against commerce per se. However, it is, against, it is a protest against a system that had become corrupt and exploitative. In addition to needing animal sacrifices, the animals had to be perfect and spotless. Consequently, a relationship had developed between the temple high priests and the merchants themselves. And as African theologian Tokunbo Adeyemo uh, notes, these animals would cost five or six times more than animals bought elsewhere. Furthermore, a temple tax was required. However, in order to pay the temple tax, you had to have the exact amount in the exact currency. And so thus, those coming from outside of Jerusalem ended up paying an exorbitant surcharge because of the currency exchange and the change required to secure the exact payment. 
And so what this added up to was religious authorities exploiting worshipers at the temple rather than ushering them into the place that was the spiritual heartbeat of their faith. The temple was a location where they could commune with God because it was viewed as the actual house of God where he resided. The temple was to be the place of their healing and salvation and instead it had become a place of profiteering and of shame. Because again, there's a shame that comes when you know you're being taken advantage of. There's nothing you can do about it. So the worshipers, they just wanted to worship. But to get in required that they subject themselves to exploitation and payment and to sacrifice not required. And Jesus shows up and he sees what's going on and he puts an end to the system. And cleansing the temple and the conversation that he has with the Jewish leaders afterwards, what Jesus is saying is he's saying that the, relig- the religious machinery is going to be destroyed, that the temple and the brokenness of it, it's all coming down. And the way that Jesus is going to undermine it, it, it was going to be in his very own body and with his very own blood so that anyone that wanted access to the Father could have it. No need for trips to Jerusalem or sheep or money changers. Faith in Christ alone. He was going to bring the religious machinery down. I've shared before uh, that when I was in seminary, um, many of the poor financial decisions I had made in college came to roost on me then. There were several months um, when I was there that I just couldn't make ends meet. I, uh, I remember taking a piece of jewelry that meant a lot to me to a pawn shop in San Rafael, California pawning it. When you pawn something, there's a weird feeling uh, to hand something over to a stranger that means a lot to you, but doesn't mean anything to them. To know that you could lose that thing if you don't pay it back, the exorbitant charges that are put on top of it. I remember that same time um, going to stand in line at a payday loan place that was near that pawn shop and took out a loan on my measly part-time paycheck. And I paid an interest rate in the hundreds and I mortgaged my future. I remember never answering the phone during that season because I assumed it was bill collectors and I just wanted to isolate myself. I also remember the shame of it all, the embarrassment uh, of it. I remember the embarrassment when, when folks around me began to figure out what was going on. My roommate, I remember my roommate Brett, he found out, he answered the phone one day. We had a landline back then so he could answer it. It's a thing, you plug it in the wall. This was late 90s, early 2000s. You can Google a picture of one on the phone you have now in your pocket. <laughs> I remember Brett answering the phone and it was a collection agency. And me having to explain to him what was going on and being red-faced and being just mortified by it. I remember when Lisa found out and some of the elders at my church I was so, I was just ashamed. I wanted to crawl into a hole. Ashamed of the decisions that I had made and the situation I was in. I was embarrassed at what felt like just such limiting options for me moving forward. And the anger that I had at what was happening to me. And it's that feeling that I hang on to every time I come into this section of John chapter 2. Because I want to keep that feeling to think that that's probably what it was like for those that came from so far away and had to navigate 
this economic gauntlet that was oppressive on them just so they could come to a place to say with others, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand on that holy place? And so I hang on to those feelings every time I come to John 2. They had to endure this. And so in this part of chapter 2 in the temple, Jesus doesn't transform. He drives out. He drives out the religious machinery that was intended to be dignity-giving but had become soul-crushing. He drives out and in its place he puts himself there and says, I'm going to bring this down and in my body I will raise it up. There was a financial reckoning that was needed for me. I needed some things driven out of my life, undisciplined ways of living, areas where I wasn't trusting God or God's ways with my money. And certainly that crucible taught me tremendous lessons about financial health and stewardship that I carry with me today, praise be to God. But also God showed me the power of trusting my faith community with my shame. And in so trusting, he taught me what honor looks like. And he made up what was lacking in my life, what was lacking physically and spiritually. And it didn't happen in an instant, though. Much of it took time, in some cases, years. But it happened, and it was miraculous. Jesus drove out the shame, and in its place, he gave the richness of his grace and of his presence and his beloved community. But it didn't happen because I arrived in a better financial position. Don't... Don't miss it. Don't miss the meaning of the story for the details of the story. God drove out my shame and my sense of worth and my sense that my worth is built on worthiness that I create. And in its place, God put a delight in knowing that I'm loved when I'm a mess and when I'm put together. Some things Jesus transforms, like water into wine. And other things he drives out like money changers in a temple. And the reason for all of it is so that we can know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one who rescues and he is the one who saves and he's the one who has come to save and to rescue us. That's the story of John 2. Let me pray for us. Oh, God, you are good. You're patient with us. You pursue us. You won't let us go. You're ahead of us, awaiting us. You're with us in the midst of storms and troubles. You're behind us, cheering us on. You're everywhere exactly where we need for you to be. Even when it doesn't feel like you are, you're there. And at every turn, you're reminding us of your great love for us. God, I pray that this morning as we wrestle with our own humanity, with our own dignity, with areas in our lives that feel shame-ridden, God, I pray that we, would, that we would hear from you, from your word, from your Holy Spirit, that we are, as we sing, children of God, not because of work that we have done, but because of work that God has done. 
through Christ on the cross and in the resurrection. God, I pray that that story soaks in us. In whatever ways that we've been led and guided by fear or shame or disappointment or isolation, God, I pray that in the power of your spirit, that those things, that you would transform some of those things and that you would, that you would, that you would push out, that you would force out, that you would cleanse other parts of it, God, so that we might come to a place of knowing that you are the God who saves all that in Christ's name. Amen.